those of you who know Tom Daxon, he is in Mission Hospital. He is on life support. Uh, he, has, he went on life support last night. He has some improvement uh, this morning. So um, we'd like to remember him in prayer, uh, keep him in our thoughts. Joe's surrounded by family, which is wonderful. Um, she absolutely covets your prayers. She um, is a true introvert. And if you go and visit her without her knowing, it will, um, she will be very concerned for you and for your needs. And it will drain her. If you would like to send her a card at the hospital or at her home, she will cherish it. All right, this morning I'd like to pray for Tom. I'd like to give a chance for each of us to uh, pray for uh, somebody in our life who's physically, emotionally, spiritually, vocationally, relationally um, uh, in trouble, at risk, or in need. And just pray with just the name. God knows all things. All right, and at the end, I'll, I'll close with a little prayer from the New Zealand prayer book. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our friend Tom. We thank you that you have come into his life. We thank you that you hold him dear. Just who he is, just as he is. We pray that you guide him and his family through all the next steps. That you allow them all to feel your love, your care, and your concern, and convince them in their hearts that all shall be well. We also pray for each of these people. Jesus, our guide, we journey in faith to resurrection. Through failure, through success, through whatever lies ahead, for you are the way and life. 
Amen. We're going to go into our silent prayer time now. And this morning I cherished this, this time. Last night when I <clears throat> got the text about Tom, uh, it was critical, but not as serious as it became through the night and into this morning. Um, and if you think, well, I'm not familiar with that name, Tom Daxon. You'd know him if you saw him. Uh, if you've been here for any time at all, he's always here uh, before everyone else, helping to set up chairs and coffee and all. He and his wife, uh, Joe, are, are very much involved and always have been. Uh, white hair, a beard of various lengths and styles, uh, <clears throat> uh, but always some uh, facial hair. And he's... You know, our, our silent prayer is all about making space for God and the beauty of it is he comes and he fills that space with himself and with whatever his grace has for us in that moment. Last week, if you are here, I told you that we would have a special guest speaker and um, without any further introduction, if Elise would uh, come up here... Thank you so much for being here. She said, wow, that was really smart of you to know you're going to be sick today <coughs> and arrange a guest speaker. But it just happened to be good luck. Thanks, Chuck. Let's see if I can figure out technology. You'd think I could do this, but I'm used to using my iPhone. What do you think? Is that good? All righty, cool. Well, good morning, everybody. Gosh, it's... Good morning, Bill. It's good to be here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. Um, this morning, we're going to go on quite of a journey. Okay, so we're going to talk about um, echolocation. We're going to talk about sound. We're going to talk about how all of that relates to the Shema, um, to the Beatles, and what that has to do with you, God, Christianity, and really changing the world that we live in with the noise that we make. Okay. So you're going to have to journey. Like I said, it's going to be a little bit of an exercise. Um, when I was preparing for this morning, I responded to Chuck like this. I said, I'm going to pay attention to what is reverberating within me. And then I like, couldn't get that out of my head. I'm like, well, yeah, what is reverberating within me? And so my usual process is to kind of go and find a spot to listen and to see if I can like catch something. It's like fishing. Like I'm going to let the line run as far and as long as humanly possible. And if I get something, now comes this moment of how am I going to land this fish? So it was like this, let it out, reel it back in, let it out, reel it back in. And it became this process of like pinball, like this journey of what does sound have to do with listening? And, and how do we listen? What does that look like in our culture today? And, and how do we get to all these points and to connect all these things? And so for me, I need to find a space, a space to listen and to let it run. So I have three children. One of them's here today. Um, they're five, almost four, and almost two. Okay, so quiet is not really a reality <laughs> in my household. So when I was preparing, I hid in this little room under our staircase because I thought no one would find me. 
And so I began with this question, that question I told you, what is reverberating within me? And here's what happened. I thought about how we first learn sounds, probably because I have little kids, but how these sounds become familiar to us. I thought about how language develops from sound through repetition, and I thought about how that represents like safety and language and tribe. And I thought about how we become familiar with sound, you know, with that parent that's kind of mirroring that back and forth for us. And so then I thought about like nursery songs and cadence, and I thought about a tuna, a s acoustic resonance and tuning forks. All these things I remember learning about in grade school with circadian rhythm and, and all these experiments that our science teacher did. And then I thought about people from different cultures and how before there was writing, all they had was sound. All they had was noise. And so they didn't have anything that they could actually read. And so all they had was this tradition, kind of like what we're doing here today. And so it took me on this journey. It took me to the Jewish people and the Shema, which was this re repeated verbal phrase that they would use to kind of remember who they were to each other, who they were to God, and who they were in the, among their culture, within their culture. I thought about their obedience to God. So this is thousands of years ago, right? And I thought about how that word, that phrase, became something that actually became physical. How right now, in Israel, there are people that are practicing the reality of the scripture with their phylacteries and their fringes. It's literally become a physical concept. So language becomes a manifested artifact. We shape culture with our words. So I'm down in one of these particular little rabbit holes and then I'm sure like one of the kids comes in and I got super distracted. And it was like when you're scuba diving, you like surface really too quickly. And I get up to the top and I'm like, whoa, what is happening? And you know, probably got them goldfish or a snack or something so I can get back in. This was like waking up from a dream and feeling like I needed to find that warm spot again so maybe I can connect back to where I was going. And so then I thought about like how our bodies, how we can kind of reposture our bodies to get back into the flow of something or how we pair. We want to pair our internal environment with our external environment. And so I started thinking about like flow and homeostasis and how we're always trying to return to something that matches the congruency of what we have here with what we have here and how sometimes we can use music to do that or a time of silent prayer, or classical music, for sure, right? Or watching nature, how all of that kind of allows us to dip to this different level. I thought about breathing. I thought about how we um, can be both here and somewhere else, just with the power of our mind. But I really thought about this group here, and I thought about what you represent in the community. Why don't we say your sound. I thought about your sound, your specific sound, and what you sound like in this community. I also thought about Chuck. I thought about his voice. And it made me think about all the times I've heard his voice. You know how that happens? Where you're like, oh yeah, and all of a sudden it was like click, 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 click. All these images of, of Israel and <laughs> different places we've been. And I've, I've heard your voice and how much that shaped me as a follower of Christ. And again, it wasn't something tangible, but now it is something tangible. And so I thought about object permanence. So that idea that when children begin to learn that even if mom isn't present, she is permanent. And so I thought about memory and how the brain holds all these different components, specifically sound. How like music can transport you. Like if you've heard a song and all of a sudden you're like back in high school and that's the song and you heard it and you were with that, that person, you're probably not now spouse. So um, I thought about David Crowder. 
he sang that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. He talks about tuning our heart to sing thy grace. And so that picture came back out. And then I told you I looked up this, um, this Google or YouTube video on acoustic resonance. You need to go look at it. Okay? It took me from acoustic resonance and it took me back to love, which took me to the Beatles. Right? Yeah, this is the right crowd for that. And then I thought, that is what the world so desperately needs right now. But it needs it specifically from us. So aren't you glad you don't live in my mind? Right? You guys? Yeah. This will probably be in the span of like five minutes, too. I told you it's like a pinball machine. But this is what happens, like when you let it out, when you're just kind of letting it run, like, like we just did in that silent prayer. Start with something. Let it rip. Something's going to continue to pop up, and it's probably going to be your experiences in Christ and all the things that have been associated and connected with what you do in your faith practice. So that's our map for the day. Don't let it frighten you. It's our map, and we're going like, to kind of dip in and hover over some of these locations and see what might connect to your specific spiritual experience. So we're going to start with listening. How do you listen? How do you listen to God specifically? How do you discern his voice from that milieu? So Christians can get really hung up on this. It can be a little taboo that I heard from God. So either they're overly afraid that they've like made up the voice of God, they've created something, or that there's no way they could possibly hear from God. And then like somewhere in between that. Sometimes people project this harsh, critical voice, and they assume that's God because of some like projected idea of Father. Does that sound familiar? So how do we know when it's really God? Do you guys remember telephones before caller ID, right? The cord, the kitchen, okay? How did you know when your mom was calling, right? The, the sound of her voice. It doesn't matter where you are, if you pick up the phone and your mom's on the other end, you will not be mistaken. You know that that is your mom. And you know it not because you hear it. You know it because something connects in you that's bigger than the sound. You know it because you've experienced your mom. And you're like, that's my mom. My mom's calling me. That is like how we discern the voice of God. You know it experientially, not just because it says the big man upstairs on your iPhone. You know it inside yourself. And similarly, if your mom calls and says, um, please send um, $1 million to Africa because a royal prince has captured me, and I mean, you're probably going to be like, what? no, that doesn't sound like my mom. So then you're going to go back, right, and compare this to all the other times you've heard mom. Does it line up with who I know my mom to be and my experience of my mom? So similarly, if you can think about how you hear the voice of God, if it lines up to what you know it says about God in scripture and your experience of him, then it's probably going to be a voice that sounds generous, gracious, lavish, restorative. And if it's not that, then it might not be God, right? It's probably not. If it's something that's hypercritical and shaming, that's probably the one that we're going to ditch. Caller ID. My kids will never know any other thing but that. <laughs> so, I had, um, when I was in college, I spent the semester abroad in Thailand. And this was like my big moment to go like listen to God. So I spent eight days in a monastery in Thailand doing this silent retreat. 
you know, like, like what all college kids do on spring break, right, is yeah. silent, silent retreats, right? It's amazing I even got married. <laughs> so I'm in the silent retreat, and here's the setting. It's literally the jungle, because we're in Thailand, and there are all these monks with their saffron robes. It's like that shocking orange color. And we're in the jungle, so there's nothing. There's nothing. It's a stone monastery in the mountains on the border of Burma. And people don't even know what Burma is, right? So this is nowhere. So I took my vow of silence, and I was ready to be quiet. I had read every book on the spiritual disciplines. I was, like, available for contemplation. I was in college, like I said, so I'm kind of ready for this hinge moment to like, be a real adult. So I take my vow of silence, and I am not joking you, it was the loudest experience of my entire life. I couldn't turn it off. I couldn't turn my mind off. <laughs> it would just go and go and go. And so there was this like meditative garden, and I'm like, I'm going to go crazy if I don't like put this, let this flow out. So I just walked that maze, walked that maze until I wore my shoes out, and it felt like my thoughts were kind of like dripping off behind me. And I thought about it like, almost like becoming like unmummified. Like I was leaving all of them in this garden. And I needed that shedding experience. I really needed to lose all that. Because at the end of all of that, the intrusive memories, the thoughts, the clamor, um, my opinions of myself, not too gracious, there was quiet. There was something at that core. And that really did allow me to stop and hold it and just appreciate it and enter in. So from that experience, I learned that the discipline of silence, oh, Ollie, the discipline of silence is not something that is, um, like we plunge into and it's like a spurt. It becomes this like natural rhythm in our life. And so that's almost what I want to challenge with us, is that in order to avoid that chaotic experience that you think silence is going to be like really restorative, how do you let it out a little more often? How do you find that silent space so that it isn't something that's like, whoa, super overwhelming when you go to do it? So listening. We're going to take this a little bit more personally. What does it sound like within you? Okay? If we were to listen in to your inner voice, to your thought process, what would it feel like? Would it feel positive and encouraging, like inspiring, hopeful and strong? Or would it feel shameful impoverished, small. Do you notice how what you listen to here really affects how you feel right here and that really affects what we do out here? Here. The sound of our thoughts, positive or negative, they influence our direct experience of ourselves, our perception of others, and eventually our worldview. The noise in our head can genuinely prevent us from stepping out, from doing something that we know we were created and made to do. And so we need to adapt what's going on there. Because when the sound in our head is gracious, we settle into our skin a little bit, right? Do you know that person who's like kind of happy to be themselves? We embrace all the different parts of ourselves and this directly influences others' experience of us. It's like this question. What do you sound like to others when you're in dialogue? How do they hear you? This is an important and difficult question to answer, specifically for Christians. How do we sound? 
And sometimes we don't like the way we sound in here, so there's probably a chance we're not going to like the way we sound out here. We want to consider our sound. So here's our next rabbit hole. Language. I told you to have three kids, so we're kind of right in the middle of speech and for sure speech therapy. You guys, our middle child, it's like a mouthful of marbles. So we do all sorts of things. Judah, can you say <laughs> Dada? Come on, Judah. Mama, right? We do that. We want, our, we want to connect with people, so we use language. We break it down. We make it easily repeatable. We mimic and mirror those language sounds. What happens is relationship develops, and they get this mastery over their earthly environment. When they're able to say, snack, <laughs> when they're able to say, I want, there's this idea that now there's communication and relationship, there's less meltdowns, there's more emotional regulation. There's connection and there's mastery. Okay, now for us as adults, specifically in this context, it might sound like this. We practice, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? We get a connection with our heavenly Father and mastery over our earthly environment. We do the same thing. We're practicing language in an effort to, to connect. And language that's forming and informing. And so we practice we practice, we practice, we practice. I notice you started today with, with peace be with you. There's this call and response, this back and forth, this idea that you know what to say when someone says this. So you're starting to see how listening, even here, connects to how we listen here, right? And we begin to associate. We associate specific people with specific sounds and feelings to those specific sounds. There's a reaction. If you listen... If you listen to a specific song and it moves you, it's like that song where you just kind of feel like a little, like, something breathing on your neck. It's like the chilly feeling. And we don't necessarily know why, but it is something that's connecting us to something bigger than ourselves. We are affected by other frequencies. So if you see someone that maybe you're like, that person maybe creates a negative frequency within you, that person at your work, that person in your family, whatever it is, something that literally is going to start changing the way your noise is, your frequency, your vibration, gets a little tweaked because, wah, there's that sound again. I really don't like that. It might look like this. Frustrating day at work. I come home, I'm short with my spouse, who then is like anxious with the children, who then act out and kick the dog. Right? Do you remember that old example? Okay, so what about if, if this is in reverse? What if we did it like this? We came together this morning. We had this collective, elevated experience. We attune ourselves to the heavenlies. Something spiritual reverberates with us, within us. We carry it with us. We're kind to the stranger who in turn goes home and is nice to his partner, who treats the kids well, who bask in their parents' affection, and they weren't here this morning. They weren't even here. This is how we change our community. This is how the world gets different. We make some noise. But we're going to make this type of noise on purpose. Okay. I told you about the YouTube video. Seriously, Google it. Tuning fork, acoustic resonance. Here's what happens. They take these two tuning forks, and they're set up to these little um, PVC pipes. And they put them right next to each other. And what they do is they strike one of them, and they turn it towards the other one, and this other one starts making the exact same reverberation. 
So one is struck, and the other one starts making the exact same noise. And that's called acoustic resonance. That's exactly what we're doing here today. We're going to get struck, and you're going to be able to start taking that frequency outside of this room. There is something peculiar when I think about that in regards to what the church is. How there, we are attuned to a different frequency than the people that are outside of this room. We are attuned to something that is bigger than you can get anywhere else. A heavenly frequency is super different than a worldly <coughs> frequency. And so when you think about that, I love thinking about what do we sound like to God? What does the church sound like? And not just when we sing, but like when we live or when we love or when we care for other people or when we do what he has told us. I wonder what that is like. So that call and response, right, for the Jewish people, this is what they'd say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. And this is what they would do like when they'd gather together, like how we did the peace be with you. This is that moment where they say, this is who I am and whose I am. This is who I am and my identity as a Jew, and also whose I am in comparison to what's going on in the polytheism of the culture of that day. There's this back and forth. Okay, so I have my own version of this with my daughter. She's one, almost two. And so I'll say, Eden, who's my girl? And she looks and she's like, Eden! And it's this moment between us, it's like our own personal Shema, who you are and whose you are. There's this moment that creates intimacy. We're using language for a reminder and a repetition in this community and this idea that this is who we are, Eden. You're my girl. I love it. I love having a daughter. So distraction and pairing, because that's probably the most like real point of my life, is distraction and then, okay, get back in the groove, and then multitask and um, do as much as I can. It's like, I feel like a magician most of the time. So we can set this intention like we did in silent prayer. We've set this intention to speak peace to the different parts of ourselves. And how many of you, when you go to do that, think of what you're going to do after this maybe, or that you are hungry, um, or that there was someone walking by. Um, there can be anxiety, that feeling in our chest, distraction. Um, we have this idea that we want to be joyful, always patient in affliction, but then we get literally distracted by real-life struggles, pain, not enough money, I lost my job, this is hard. We can get pulled out of that flow of grace that we try to figure out, how do I like, jump back in? How do I pair myself back to that flow? We can know so much. Right? We know so much up here about what his word says, but the noise of the accuser can really drown that out. How many times does it feel like, Lord, I know who I am, but man, that voice is crippling. It's crushing. Or when we actually do something wrong, when we actually blow it in relationship, how quick is it to say, I always do that. I'm never going to get that right. I'm such a failure. Okay, or what about when someone hurts you? What does it sound like within you? Is it ruthless? I knew it. He's the worst. We can justify rejection or pain with sentiments that make them less. We kind of want to squish them. We can get distracted by the sound of that dialogue within us, this tug of war between love and vitriol. And then we remember that we want to pair ourselves with something different because that doesn't feel good. Negativity does not feel good. And so we're constantly trying to like, get our way out of it. And so that's when we go for a walk. That's when we look at the waves. That's when we recite scripture. That's when we try to pair ourselves back to something heavenly, how we change our frequency. 
We use our sounding and our surrounding to ground us, to kind of like turn our hearts back heavenward. So memory and sound. I just took this course on how memory is stored and the different components that make up memory. It was super fascinating. They're talking about how images, emotions, thoughts, and sensations are the different components of memory. And the sensations are specifically like a smell um, or a sound or a bodily sensation. So if you smell that perfume and you're like, why I know that? Why do I know that? So sound takes us back. It's, trans it's transportative. And we have these memories that are already kind of paired with a sound or a song. <coughs> For me, there was a song that was played at my brother's memorial service. And I am not joking you. I cannot escape it. It is on every Pandora station. It is everywhere. And every time I'm transported back to that moment, but it's not, it's not sad. It's not a sad moment. It's just like this moment of like, is that a message like, from beyond? Is that something like reaching out from behind the veil? What is that? Because it's everywhere. And it takes me back to that relationship. And I love it. I love it. So sound produces an experience. That one I mentioned earlier, that David Crowder song, that well, it's not his song. He sings it. Come Thou Fount. He talks about tuning our hearts to sing his grace. I love the word picture. We sing his grace. And this is the clincher. We're not producing a sound of condemnation, judgment, exclusivity, or contingency. If that is what is resounding within us, we are a clanging symbol. You know the difference. This is where it takes us to 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing a letter to the church and he is trying to make everything right, okay? And this is the worst possible people to be writing a letter to because they all just converted from heathenism, okay? It would be better if they converted from something that at least had principles, right? But no, this is heathenism, okay? He has a lot of instruction he has to give, a lot of writing of wrongs he has to give. And this culture is highly influenced by trade. There's people from everywhere. It's on this little isthmus, and so everyone speaks a different language. It's a cluster, you guys. It's a madhouse. And this is the church, which is supposed to be holy and different. And so here's Paul. He's written 12 chapters of, ah, guys, you're get, come on, guys, come on, guys. And then we get to chapter 13. It's that chapter that's like read at almost every wedding you've probably ever been to, right? And it talks about the most excellent way being love. But if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I am a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. I'm annoying, basically. Okay? This is the commentary that somebody wrote about what's happening within Paul as he's writing this chapter. I'm going to read it to you because his words are phenomenal. The more excellent way is love. Without it, all moral and intellectual gifts are valueless. If there be love, the love of God and the love of brethren in our hearts, all will be well. This hymn of praise and honor of love is remarkable. That this passage should be found in the middle of a protracted argument suggests the idea that what we have here is the result of a sudden and direct inspiration. The apostle had always been conscious of a mighty power working in him, mastering him, bringing him into captivity to Christ. And there suddenly flashes upon him the realization of what that power is. 
and he cannot but at once give utterance in language of surpassing loftiness and glowing with emotion to the new and profound conviction which has set his whole soul aflame. This chapter is the baptismal service of love. And here it receives its new Christian name, the word agape, which is used here for love is only in the New Testament and not to be found in any other heathen writing. Come on, right? Yeah, I think about Paul being kind of, I mean, for one, he wrote most of the New Testament. So he's kind of the dude, and he's the authority, and he's the one who did it all right. And now all of a sudden, he's like undone, and he can't, he's like writing poetry in the middle of this letter that's supposed to be like power and force. It's like when he got struck off that horse in Damascus. He's moved off of his position because of the power of love. There's this little tiny verse in Jeremiah, and he says it like this. If I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is shut up in my bones like a fire. If I try to hold it in, I cannot. I become weary, right? He can't hold it in. He's like exploding with what God's doing inside of him. And that's what happened to Paul in this Corinthians chapter, smack dab in the middle of this letter of instruction is, by the way, love. (laughs) He's powerfully powerless to this movement, to what's happening within him. So like I said, Corinth is on this isthmus, right? It's like sticking straight out there. And so they trade with everybody. And so what do you need if you're going to do business with everyone? Language. You need to speak every tongue, right? It's a really valuable gift to this community. If you can do that, then you're going to come work for me. That's what it is. How many languages do you speak? Because I need you to go strike a deal with that guy and that guy and that guy. And I want it all. (laughs) So you were a, a valuable, valuable person if you had the gift of the tongues of men. If you have the gifts of the tongues of angels, that ability to speak heavenly, to directly communicate with your father, these are valuable actual gifts. And Paul says they're worthless. He's talking to this audience on purpose. He knows that they know how much it means to be able to speak in many languages, and he says it doesn't even matter. If I do not have love, I am a noise. I'm a worthless sound. It doesn't have value in the kingdom of God, in the heavenly trade. Because love is the currency of the kingdom. And without it, we're a bunch of clamoring brass. You guys, the world does not need more good. Anyone can do good. There are so many people doing good. The world needs agape. The world needs spontaneous combustion. It needs us to make a sound that tunes all our hearts to this resounding frequency of grace. You know the difference. When you feel like you've connected to something that's bigger than yourself, like there's this vertical connection of, I don't know, I don't have language really to define what it is, but it's bigger than me. And then from out of that place, you're inspired to do something horizontally. That's what it looks like to love in this agape love. It's prompted from the spiritual place. As I was sitting with that concept, I think I, I saw it like this. It was, I imagine like this heavenly chorus kind of surrounding us with like all of Earth's best musicians that are now like heaven side. And I imagine them like looking in on us like, like an inverse symphony. You know, like we're, we're in the center, but they're all around us making music. And that there would be this like call and response. This idea of, I love you. I love you too. This back and forth exchange of, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Go feed my sheep. 
this back and forth direction, this symphony, this reverse inverse symphony. Our country, our world, our community, our families, they need us more now than ever. How many mass shootings have we seen this year? Okay. I've had six people in my office in the last two months from the Vegas shooting. That is enough, right? That is enough. How many more are we going to have before the year is over? There is something seriously broken in our society. Micro. Let's take it on a micro scale. The holidays are coming. That can be a really dreadful time for a lot of us. It reminds us of our broken families. It's taking us to a space of, um, I don't know that I like my present reality. Our communities are in need here, not just on a global scale, but on this micro scale where God has planted us. So what sound do Christians make in that space? What noise are they, we, known for? Is it the crowd of naysayers and judgment? Or is it the cloud of great witnesses ushering people on saying, you got it, you got it, you're doing so good, you're doing so good. The crowd or the cloud? How can we reverberate differently? That's what I want us to think about today. How do we reverberate differently into our communities so that the noise that we make isn't hurtful to other people in the name of God? So that we don't cloak spirituality around like shame and contingencies. There is no if then. There is just the thing. Hear this. This is the one thing I want you to hear today. The world needs the church. Desperately. The world desperately needs the church. And we are the church. It's us. We're not waiting for someone else to come along. We're not waiting for someone else to go do that thing. It's you. Every one of you. We are the church. We bear his image. We're the person for the job. It's us. How do we respond then to that calling? Because it is. And it's not more than a calling. It's a need. We can see it. Let's do it with symphony. I want to start, I want to be a part of a wave that's already been going on, this idea of Christians being considerate, aware, intelligent, generous, a part of community and society. And you are that. You already are that. You are a part of an intentional, beautiful community that meets on purpose, that's affected by grace, rooted in his word, established with really good people, good Christian stock, right? Look around this room. You have all been journeying in your faith longer than I have been alive. This is a rich room, right? It is a rich room. So I want you to think about what your time today is like this. You came in and you just struck that tuning fork against his word. You're striking it against that first Corinthians experience of love and agape, And my challenge is let it go out this room. Don't keep it in here because this is like where you have that sound. We take it out. We're going to take it out. You're going to go home and you're going to love your spouse. You're going to pray for your children. You're going to be friendly to the stranger. You're going to do that little thing, which is actually a massive thing because it's in the name of agape. It's in the name of something bigger than yourself. And there's a difference. And people notice when you're just doing them a solid. And when you come with this kingdom authority and this power, that love is bigger than all of us. So what does it actually look like? Let me close with this. This is how we embody love. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. That is what we're going to sound like, right? That's what we're going to sound like. Let's pray. Yes, Lord. More of your love. More of your sound. We just open ourselves this morning, Lord, for you to breathe that that heavenly noise into us. Let it reverberate off of all of our walls. Let it move in us, Lord God, as if we're like caught up in this like spiritual eddy. Let it just move us to this place where we can't help but put it back into the world, God, that we couldn't turn it off if we wanted to, that it would become this contagious music sound to the whole world, that they would be like, what is that? Father, tune us. Tune us to you. Maybe be aware that there are so many parts in the symphony and help us just to find our niche. We thank you, Lord God, for this morning. We join the church nationwide, globally this morning as we turn and just acknowledge that you are the king, you are the Lord, you are the one and only. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Wow. (laughs) And now I've been surpassed. (laughs) Thank you for the inspiration and for the job insecurity. (laughs) Would you stand, please? May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.